Welcome to In Search Of, a podcast of the Christian Century, where we go in search of voices and perspectives that inform and expand a life of faith. This podcast is inspired by a line from the poet Rainier Maria Rilke. You see, said the poet, I am one who likes to look for things. I'm your host, Amy Frickholm, and like Rilke, I like to look for things. Sometimes, let's be honest, more than I like to find them. In season one of In Search Of, we are exploring saints and sages, inner and outer landscapes, and the dynamics of searching and finding. This week, our guest is Dan Kosky. I met Dan on my journey to find Mary of Egypt. He was one of the only people I met who knew anything about Mary of Egypt, and he's an important character in my book, Wild Woman, about my search for her. But he's also a person, and I wanted to talk to Dan today because I've become curious about the dynamics of devotion to saints. Dan might be the first person I've ever met who describes himself as a devotee of saints and holds Mary of Egypt particularly close to his heart. Dan lived for 10 years in the West Bank in the Holy Land and now lives in Romania. Welcome to In Search Of, Dan. It is wonderful to hear from you again after a few years. Thank you for inviting me. I wonder if we could start by just having you tell us a little bit about your background. You've lived all over the world, but you grew up in Minnesota, is that right? Yes, I am about a fourth generation Minnesotan. I never lived outside of the state all throughout my my childhood and my young adulthood, but I occasionally would go on little journeys, but I would always wander back to Minnesota. And then it wasn't until one of these journeys brought me to the Holy Land for Pascha or Easter in 2008 that I got the Jerusalem bug. The the primary reason that I went that year was that I had an invitation from a woman who would eventually become my fiance and later on my wife. We had originally planned to move to the United States. That proved not to be possible. So in May of 2009, I moved to the Holy Land in her village of Beit Jala, which is one of the three villages that make the Christian belt of the West Bank, which is Beit Jala, Bethlehem, and Beit Sahur. And then I spent 10 years of my life there. So I left in May 2019, went to Cyprus for a while, then to Serbia, before I wound up in Romania, where I've been here for approximately two years. And when you were in Minnesota, you were a Lutheran. My father comes from the Finnish Lutheran tradition. Uh, so all my family on that side were, were Finnish Lutherans. And my Father grew up in what would eventually become the ELCA, uh, not the Finnish Synod from Michigan. But my mother's family were French Canadians primarily, along with some other different groups from, uh, from the UK, Ireland, and Western Europe. So they were overwhelmingly Catholic. So this is my parents met in the post-Vatican II era. So they were part of that generation that where interconfessional marriages really started to pick up. My dad decided that he wouldn't mind being Catholic. So I was raised in the Roman Catholic tradition, but I still was very much aware that I had a a, a Lutheran background, but I went to Catholic school as a young boy to the local Catholic parish in my mother's hometown. And I had a very post-Vatican II growing up experience. It was not smells and bells of the pre-Vatican II uh, Latin mass, but something that when I would go to my Lutheran friend's church, it wasn't really all that different. But one of the things I always noticed that was different was that we did have the devotion to saints. And my 
Catholic school made a big deal about All Saints Day. So we would dress up as saints. What saint did you dress up? That is one of my favorite things to mention. For my first communion, I had received uh, a book of the, the, the different saints from, I believe it was my godparents, my aunt, my uncle, who's a, who's a deacon in the Catholic church. And I just loved flipping through that book and seeing all the different saints. And I chose St. Stanislaus of Poland because it sounded like my first name, Dan, and because my last name is Finnish, but it sounds Polish. And if we were together in the same school, St. Stanislaus and I, we'd be stuck next to each other because of his last name, which starts with K. So everyone else wanted to be St. Anthony or St. Peter or St. Christopher. And I was mumbling St. Stanislaus of Poland. And (laughs) the teachers thought that was really odd, but... It so happened that at the time, our our priest was from Northeast Minneapolis, from a Polish Catholic community. So he thought that was very endearing. He's still alive today. We're still friends. I'm still St. Stan. Looking back, that was sort of my first real adaptation of what would become my journey with the saints, I guess. It was a unique one, but one that I, I still hold dear. So how did you come to Orthodoxy? My childhood spent a lot in the Catholic parish and in the church. As a teenager, I drifted away from the church and I had a personal crisis, very much so in my late teens and early 20s. I was not a faithful member of the church. I ended up going to a Benedictine school that was originally an all-girls college that had about a 80% 80% female, 20% male ratio. I lasted about a semester there, and I quickly realized how far I had gone away from Catholicism. When I had gone uh, to that, that university, I dropped out, and I was quite lost for a while. And one way or the other, I started to, to look to where I was going to be headed in life, and I made some connections uh, to Serbia, and I ended up going to Serbia. Now, At that time, it was the late 90s, early 2000s, so it was a very tense time in what was still left of former Yugoslavia, but it was such an intense experience going there. I had to know some Serbian before I went, so I ended up going to the local Orthodox church um, in northern Minnesota. I'm in the city of Duluth, actually, learned some Serbian from a few of the surviving refugees from the Second World War, and their community was centered around the church. So I ended up going to a church service in September 2000. So it's 21 years this month since I first stepped inside an Orthodox church. I was immediately floored away. I had not gone to a church service on my own volition for some time. And even though I did not consider myself religious at that moment, there was something going on there that I was just amazed. And it was a very simple community that was on the verge of extinction in terms of the numbers it had, demographic changes, people moving away. But it was just enough of an invitation into a different world that I didn't know existed within the greater Christian faith until then. And after I came back from Serbia, I slowly found myself wanting to go back to Orthodox churches. And over the the next few years, I started to attend local community services in Minnesota. Eventually, I began the process of conversion. I went back to Serbia two more times spent a lot of time in monasteries and churches, and I decided that this is what I wanted to do with a big part of my life. So by the time I was in my mid-20s, I had been formally brought into the Orthodox Church through what is known as the Orthodox Church in America, which is a former East European mission community that decided to adapt more to the, the growing and changing needs of the Orthodox faithful 
in the United States became much more open to converts, still is. Today, it's about 50% converts, if not more. And I did not really feel that I had left the Catholic Church. I felt that I had joined another expression of Christianity that could be respectful of my Catholic upbringing, but still be more attuned to the sort of faith that I felt that I was going to be leading actively on a day-to-day basis. And a big part of that was devotion to the saints. Talk about that. Orthodoxy has a rich tradition of devotion to saints. And I wonder if you could describe that tradition a little bit and then how it became important to you. Thank you. In the Orthodox, saints are a very practical and organic part of the faith. Where I live in Romania, the major feast days of the Orthodox Church are observed But then you will also have uh, regional saints that people will essentially be allowed to, say, show up late for work for a church service. You will have cases where every community will celebrate, no matter what day of the week the the day lands on, uh, feasts such as St. George, St. Nicholas, St. Demetrios in Romania, St. Andrew. These saints are not just a red ink in the prayer book. They are very much part of the daily life of people of the Orthodox world in the sense that if your name is George or if your uncle is Nicholas, you really do look to that saint to help and protect you. Uh, If you are a soldier, you will pray to the Archangel Michael. If you deliver goods for a living, you will have an icon of uh, St. Elijah or St. Christopher in your car because they're the patron saints of those professions. And it's not just daily prayers, but also cultural attachments, such as you might have particular food on a certain feast. You might have a trip to a particular monastery that your family is close to in the countryside, which then it becomes a chance to visit with your country relatives. If you're from the city, a a chance to take a look at uh, the family cemetery, pay your respects. And it very much becomes aligned and interwoven with the life of the people in the community and your identity as well. One of the challenges of the Orthodox faith in the United States is that trying to merge all these traditions into different communities, especially as more and more converts, especially from Protestants and evangelical traditions are coming in, trying to find a healthy balance between community traditions and a living life of the church is in the United States, the Antiochian Church, which I now believe is majority convert with a still a very strong Arab Christian minority. That is one of the great joyful challenges of the church. And saints then mean different things to different people is one of the lessons that you can take away from the American experience that people who are joining the, the faith and joining the church find new saints to bring in, saints that maybe not perhaps had particular devotion in a community such as Ukrainian, Polish, uh, Orthodox, uh, Serbian, but are still considered saints. And people that are coming in from reading theology might want to uh, venerate the life of a saint that is close to them in their own journey as well. It is certainly an individualized experience that is still within the collective body of the faith in a way that is not selfish. And what's your individual experience? At what moment did you become attached to a particular saint or find yourself drawn into that tradition more personally? Well, going back to that little prayer book, as I said, I grew up in a post-Vatican II household. We weren't the stereotypical Catholic family with pictures of the Virgin Mary and St. Anthony and St. Peter in the living room. We weren't that sort of Catholic family, but again, we went to church every Sunday. 
and we did take part in Sunday school. So I did learn the lives of the saints. And then I had this little book and I always remember as a boy, uh, I, I really liked reading about military history and I liked uh, action films. So I'm flipping through this book and then suddenly I saw an icon of St. George in this little book. And I went, wow, it's a soldier and he's slaying a dragon. And that stuck with me. I didn't choose him to be the next Saints Day character. But when I was traveling in Serbia, I remember seeing an icon of St. George in a, a gift shop in the town square of one of the cities I was, I was visiting next to the church. And I went, oh, that's St. George. I remember. And I bought it, even though I wasn't a practicing Orthodox or even a practicing Christian at the time. And I went home and I hung it on the wall of my, my dorm room in, in college. And it started for me to be something that I realized, okay, I, I found myself being drawn to it. I started reading about St. George and that was sort of my reintroduction into the life of the Orthodox Church. It wasn't a dramatic moment. It wasn't, I guess, what some people in the evangelical traditions might say, coming to Jesus. There were no blinding lights. There was not the Damascus moment of St. Paul, but there was St. George there. And so I kept him close to my heart. And when I traveled to the Holy Land and discovered that the place that I would eventually be living, Beit Jala, was next door to St. George, that was a big moment for me. And along the way, I also picked up St. Nicholas. I always enjoyed Christmas. And I remember a couple of the kids in my, my elementary school had the quote-unquote Kris Kringle tradition of filling up boots with candy on December 6th. And as I became more affiliated with the Serbian community, St. George and St. Nicholas are probably the two most venerated saints in, in the Serbian tradition. St. Nicholas came along for the ride as well. And when I was in Montenegro, I lost my wallet, which in a city known for a very high crime rate. And I had my wallet in there. At the time I was a police officer, I might have even had my police ID in there. And I went, oh, this is bad. Oh, this is bad. And we couldn't find the wallet, couldn't find it. I ended up going to the local a church, which happened to be dedicated to St. Nicholas, said a prayer, asked for peace for, and resolution to the situation, went back to the guest house I was staying at. I found my wallet in a minute. Oh. Uh, and so we went back to the church and I bought an icon and a lamp and said, okay, this is St. Number two. And that's how it started along the way. It's always been a handful of saints that I, I keep and hold their feast days. I'm blessed to be in a part of the world where you can show up late for work and move your schedules around to go to church. I always keep a certain number. If I can't make it, I, I pray at home. I, I light my icon lamp. And that is the anchor of the expression of my faith, along with uh, devotion to the Virgin Mary. You are listening to In Search Of, a podcast of the Christian Century. You'll be inspired and informed by the excellent writing and thinking found in the pages of Christian Century magazine. Subscribe with this special offer only for podcast listeners who are also new subscribers. Get a whole year of the century for just $19.95. To sign up, go to christiancentury.org slash in search of offer. That's christiancentury.org slash in search of offer. So what is devotion? What does it mean to you? How do you understand it? How would you define it? Yes. Well, that's probably a good question for the people I work with that have had, that have PhDs in theology that have spent years and years doing these sort of questions, but I'll give it my best shot. When I was in law enforcement, 
at the training center that I went, one of our instructors told us in our ethics class that ethics are what you do when you think nobody is watching. And I think that honest, real devotion, as opposed to superficial devotion, is very much the same thing. You can go on traveling to places such as Greece, Italy, uh, Russia, Ukraine, many parts of the world, and you can find feast days that are dedicated to different saints. And Orthodox, they have icons in their homes of their family saint or their patron saint. It's a very tangible material culture. And it's very easy if you're taking part in feast days, such as in the Holy Land or the places I've just mentioned, or in a church to say, wow, these people are very well connected to their saints and they're very devout because of the way that they venerate the icons, kissing them, bowing before them, lighting candles, organizing feast days, taking days off of work. But these are cultural attachments very often that are very sincere and devout, but you still need to put the work in. And real devotion to a saint includes these things in the Orthodox tradition, very often for most people, but it's really the story behind them. St. George did not become a saint because he slayed a dragon. St. George became a saint because he denied the emperor that was persecuting Christians. He gave up what today would basically be a position of a general in the Roman army to be executed, humiliated, taken everything taken away from him. St. Nicholas would be the equivalent today of um, a trust fund child. His parents uh, were from a wealthy merchant family in what is today the, the south of Turkey on the coast. And he gave away his inheritance to the poor and dedicated himself to be a monastic before he became a bishop. And then he still was a very poor bishop. That was something he didn't have to do. He wasn't doing it for people to say, my goodness, what a holy, pious person he was. It had to have been hard, but he did it because he believed in it. We are not called to mimic the saints, but we're called to emulate them. And every saint has a moment of crisis in life that, in terms of worldly decisions, they make those choices, and they make those choices for the glory of God rather than the glory of this world. And when you have a devotion to those saints, you remember the positive things and the positive aspects of that devotion, but you also must understand the challenges that those saints went through. And if you're called to have this connection, you have to be willing to accept the fact that if I call upon this saint for help and guidance at a moment, he may call upon me for challenges as well, or she may call upon me for challenges as well. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect, isn't it? It's a little bit easier to talk about the the devotees aspect. You know, you might light a candle, you might buy an icon, you might keep an icon close at hand or venerate the feast day as you're talking about. But the, it seems like sometimes the harder part to talk about is what the saints part in all of this is. And one of our most fascinating conversations, I think, with you, Dan, have been about when saints appear or disappear in particular kinds of ways, where it seems very clear that the agency maybe is on behalf of the saint, not on the person who is the devotee of the saint. Does that make sense? Yes, I think it does. And within that challenge also is if the agency would like to show up anytime soon, I'll give you a humorous example uh, a friend of mine just told me a story about someone that really needed to pass their driver's license test and called upon St. Nicholas to help him. 
And he failed the test where the driver said, okay, that's enough on the field practicum right in front of the local St. Nicholas church. <laughs> <laughs> There's a cheekiness. Yes. <laughs> a cheekiness um, in all of this. And it's humorous, but then there's, of course, very bitter moments uh, that people can have where, say, if you're struggling through childlessness and you've prayed to a particular shrine and it doesn't happen, the, the conception that you were hoping for hasn't occurred, or you've prayed to a particular saint, uh, especially right now during this time of pandemic, to a saint that is known for helping in times of illness, and that doesn't happen where somebody does pass away. Or, or succumbs to a subsidiary aspect of, of the illness, or life is inconvenienced another way in a very painful way, such as you can't make it to the funeral because of restrictions after you've prayed. Uh, th those are moments where it is challenging. And very much people do ask, why, you know, why does this person get this response and request taken care of when you've tried and prayed so hard? And then this individual who's not all that attached you know, goes and lights a candle and then everything that they get is granted. And that exact case has been used very often throughout criticism of saints in different traditions and in Protestantism and elsewhere during periods of, of conflict and tension with different theological scholars. And the same question could be asked of, well, wh why did one offering be accepted from Abel and not from Cain to God? So there is that link between the struggles of, of this relation with saints and very much in the struggles of faith within the New and Old Testament figures as well. Right. This isn't some kind of like drop your request in a magic box and then pull out the answer. It doesn't seem to work that way in the spiritual life in any way. If it, I think anyone that would be part of the, the Catholic or the Orthodox Church or, or the Eastern churches or any tradition with saints, they would easily tell you um, if it worked, everybody would be joining our church. <laughs> um, and just the same as if just simply praying in another tradition, in another confession worked, our churches would be empty, very uh, most likely, or next to empty. But again, that's just not how things work. And so it's very tempting to basically say we've got this Rolodex of, of saints on call when we have trouble because we know that this is an effective practical means of support. And okay, I just gave two examples in my life where these moments came through, but it's important to remember that these are examples and moments that happen to help guide us to the point of, of devotion. The story that I tell, I'm a member of, of the Order of St. Lazarus of Jerusalem. We're actually dedicated to both Lazarus the leper from the story of the parable, the rich man and Lazarus, and also devotion of Lazarus of Bethany. Lazarus was raised from the dead. But you go to Larnaca in Cyprus, and his second tomb is there, and his relics are inside that tomb. He wasn't raised from the dead to receive immortality. He was raised from the dead, and then he died. So even when saints experience miracles, they still experience hardship. And very often, I would imagine they did wish that they did die if their experience was one such as life-saving with some of the challenges that they face after that, they've had this moment of miracles. So simply because there is a miracle involved doesn't mean that that you're on easy street with the saint. In fact, that's a sign that I did help you this time, but this is in part to prepare you for difficulties and hardships that are going to be coming along at some time in your life. What do you think are some of the key misunderstandings about this relationship with saints? 
that a person like me might have because I was raised basically without them. And so I really don't have a history with saints. What do you think I might misunderstand about this relationship? I think that the the biggest concern people that are coming from confessions within the Christian uh, faith and especially those that are coming from families that did leave the Catholic or the Orthodox faith. So they have very often sort of negative memories of family confessionalism. The first would be that it's a form of pagan ritual, especially when you take a look in, say, Italy, which has a very uh, strong history of the life of the saints. People will say, look, this is basically just transplanting the old Roman gods, you know, light a candle in front of the statue kiss the toe, leave a coin, that sort of thing. You'll have a very similar thing in the Orthodox world. There were saints that very clearly transplanted local pagan deities. And so you will have the sort of concept that this is all basically just a a a remix of paganism. The Catholic and Orthodox and Eastern Rite churches do not have any sense that you are praying to the saint as an individual deity. We actually say, St. George, the great martyr, pray to God for us. We are not praying to St. George saying, help me, O great St. George, and I will devote myself to your cult. We, we are asking St. George to intercede on our behalf so that, yes, there is this unique connection. Yes, there is a problem that we are praying for, but we know that you will not fix this. You are asking for the power of God. And even though that you are in heaven amongst the saints, you are not God and you are not a God. So that's probably one of the first things that needs to be understood. The second, the second aspect, I think, would be that simply because communities will have a devotion to saints does not mean that it's just simply all cultural and can easily be discarded. And that even local priests will say to people from from small villages that, you know, if all you do is just show up on the feast days, that's not going to be leading the life of the church. In both Catholic Catholicism and Orthodoxy in the Eastern Rite churches, Cyril Malabar, Coptic, Ethiopian, you're not going to get a free pass just because you drop a couple of dollars into the plate to the feast of the prophet Elijah or the feast of St. Mary of Egypt, even, because that's your lucky day. You've got to take part in the life of the church, which involves confession, communion, fasting. You've got to be reading the scriptures. You've got to be paying attention during the sermons. and You have to be doing what the priest says. There is very often a sense that you can get around these obligations to the church if you're connected and devoted to these saints, but the life of the saints will also very clearly state that we were devoted, and there are cases where saints are admonished because they're not following um, what their bishop said originally, and God will chastise them, or they will receive a message, and they have to go back and, and give humility, which is the third element, too, that I think is important to note, that Saints were not perfect in their lifetime, and some saints had a very uh, scandalous existence before. St. Mary of Egypt, of course, well, you're the expert on that, but her story is one of great sin and great, and then years of great repentance, but you will also have cases where uh, saints were absolutely not leading good lives until almost the very end. 
where some simply said at the end of their lives, I I realize now that I have sinned, please forgive me. And the case, of course, uh, the best case for that is Dismas the Good Thief um, on the cross next to Christ, where right up until the very end, he lived a horrible, dissolute life. But at the last moment, he did what God asked him to and so became one of the first saints in the faith. What's the most recent saint that's called your name? Oh, well, that's an interesting (laughs) question for sure. I live now in Transylvania and Romania, which has a very rich interconfessional history. And we have here a Saxon German speaking community of Lutherans, which are now a very small number, but greatly contributed to uh, the development of Transylvania. And I've been speaking a lot to many German-speaking friends who I work with and sharing different traditions. And in the Holy Land, I was very close to the community of Bethany of the Russian Orthodox Church Abroad, which had a German-speaking abbess. She's not an actual abbess. She's a mother now, um, a nun, uh, Mother Maria. And we were speaking about one of the most recent saints of the Russian Church Abroad, which is St. Alexander who uh, was part of the anti-Nazi resistance movement during the Second World War with the uh, the White Rose Movement. He is one of the martyrs of the church abroad because his family, part of his family, was Russian Orthodox. He was raised Orthodox himself, and he was executed, I believe, in 1943, along with uh, Sophie Scholl, I believe, who was the other, the, the more famous member of the White Rose Movement. And as I was speaking to Mother Maria about this at the St. Alexander, she simply said, you always have a choice in life. And it's important to remember that. And I was just sharing this this news with someone here in this community about a connection to someone that was a 20th century saint that spoke German, didn't live in a monastery, didn't live in a traditional little Russian village sometime in the distance past. No, there are people are still alive that knew the family. And we have black and white photographs of this individual. He was actually conscripted into um, the German army during the, the Second World War. So he sometimes is depicted in iconography wearing his World War II German army tunic over his medical tunic. He was a medical specialist, a medic. But his moment of sainthood came by um, refusing to, to back down or compromise against evil, um, contemporary evil, fascism, Nazism. And uh, his choice was one that is in every way, shape, and form the same as St. George from the very start of the journey of Christianity out of uh, the Middle East in the ancient Roman world at the dawn of Christianity at the great moment of crisis during the last period of Roman persecution before the state became Christian. Uh, So you have different cultures spanning over a millennium and a half, and still it comes down to that moment of, am I going to dedicate my life to Christ, the Virgin Mary, to, uh, to God, to the Christian faith in this moment? Do I have the strength to do it? And St. George said yes, and St. Alexander said yes. It's fascinating how much these stories have permission to come into our lives and interact with our daily choices in a way that, I mean, of course, all history does that, right? Anytime you read a history book or whatever, but there's something, there's an interesting quality when somebody's named a saint because there's an intimacy that suddenly becomes possible. There's a vehicle for transmission somehow of ideas or possibilities 
that I'm just noticing in these traditions so that St. Alexander can in some way speak to you, Dan, personally about your life or St. George can do the same. Rowan Williams, Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Emeritus, in his book, Faith in the Public Square, famously said, I would have become Orthodox, except I just don't like dressing up all that much on Sundays. He noted that this idea that Contemporary 21st century United Kingdom is a post-Christian secular world is not entirely true because we still have dedication to things such as roadside memorial. We, meaning in, in the UK and Britain, United Kingdom, when there are demonstrations, very often they happen in front of the church, even though active membership in the Church of England or any other church is very low in the United Kingdom. He still noted there's this faith and there's still something going on there. And even for people that have no connection to saints whatsoever, I think all of us that are on social media notice that very often people pick particular individuals that are inspiring to them and they stick with them. They post memes. They they get a framed picture of a quote, put it on their office wall. You know, if they're driving through a city and they like a particular individual that showed courage, they'll stop and visit the place where they were born or a park dedicated to them take a photo, maybe leave a rose, something like that. But we're wandering into an area that, of course, people can challenge and say, well, okay, that's just admiration and heroship. But there's still always the sense that we need someone that will help us get through this craziness that we call life in a tangible way. We need someone there to hold our hand. Nobody can get through this world alone. And sometimes friends, family, the people that we're near, the people that we can touch and feel, they can't quite get us there. And those of us that have this tradition and have this idea that, yes, the saints are there, but then the faith and our our own journey and our experience and that connection tells us we can't just be there for the good times, as I said before. This is when I've really got to step up and, and do the right thing. And one of the things, too, that, again, another complaint or criticism of saints is how easily and quickly they can become weaponized. If you look at in both the Catholic and Orthodox uh, tradition, there's always some controversies going on with at least one or two possible saints, especially now as we're getting into the era of documentation where basically everything in our lives is recorded. More and more people are questioning which saints in our contemporary time really do deserve that recognition. And even though now the ante is up in terms of documentation, this is nothing new. Saints have always had the risk of being weaponized. We've had reformations over it. We've had Orthodox people fight Orthodox people. In the Orthodox Church, you will have cases where a saint will not have a local recognition in one country, because the country that they're having some conflict or tension with, it's much more popular over there. There are saints in the Orthodox Church that are recognized in the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church that are recognized in the Orthodox Church that just don't have any traction because they're seen as, ah, it's too much of a Catholic thing, or it belongs to Italy, it belongs to um, Croatia, or it's too much of a Bulgarian saint for us, whatever. In more tense moments, you have questions of saints that were more involved in politics. And there are certain saints now that are in particular traditions in the Orthodox Church that many people feel uncomfortable with in for joint commemoration because of things that they wrote and said. There are saints now in the Vatican that the Orthodox Church is actively requesting that their canonization not go forward 
because of sectarian issues that occurred not around that nominee, but, but that actual person themselves. We should be challenged and we should look at ourselves. And that's why we have these procedures and processes. They're different in both Catholic and Orthodox, but we need to allow the theological scholars, the researchers to do their work, but we also need to let the Holy Spirit do its work as well. Saints will always be found. There's nothing that we can do. If you believe in the tradition of saints in your faith, they will come about. They will be known when it's time for them to be known. I'd like to thank you once again for welcoming me to the podcast. It's really nice to be able to share this moment again with you. Returning to our friend Mary of Egypt and at my house, I have a little icon of St. Mary I put out tonight in, to help me along with this podcast. But my final little note is it's important, I think, above all, that we are called to live the life of the saints, which means that we are called to struggle and to accept that we're going to fail. It doesn't mean that we're called to be perfect. God does not ask perfection from us. He asks that we try. And saints are all about trying. So as we're all trying to get through another year of COVID, as we're all concerned about where the futures will go, our futures will go, how we're going to get through our own unique challenges with or without a pandemic, our own faith struggles, whether or not you believe that the saints have a place in your faith journey, stop and read some of their lives online. Pick up a scroll through, scroll through a couple of websites. There's even apps now for the saints of the day. If you don't approach it from a theological or spiritual perspective, that's okay. Do it from a historical perspective or do it from a challenge. Um, the same way that other people might read a poem a day. Stop into a local church. Take a look at the icons. Ask questions. But above all, just remember, they were people. They had the same struggles and issues and cares that you and I do to this day. And later on, many of them had great impossible struggles, but they know what it's like to be an ordinary, regular person just getting through life. And that's what is special about them, uh, I think, above all, is the very human connection and they too would say, you don't have to be a saint um, to live the life of a saint. Just try. So with that, I wish you a blessed autumn and all the best. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for exploring this with me and sharing your experience with the saints. I think it's a really meaningful conversation because often in these intra-religious dialogues, we miss each other when we talk about what a saint is or isn't. So I'm really grateful for you joining us today from Romania. Thank you for joining us on In Search Of. This has been a podcast production of The Christian Century, thoughtful, progressive Christian magazine of theology, politics, and culture. Visit us at christiancentury.org slash in search of to find show notes for this episode, to sign up for our weekly newsletter, and to find all the episodes of the podcast. This podcast is produced by Steve Thorngate. Editorial assistance has been provided by Annalisa Burns and Amy Adams. Special thanks to Kyle Peterson for theme music. The Christian Century is an independent, not-for-profit organization that relies on donations and subscriptions to create rich content like this podcast. Have you considered making a donation to the Century? Is your magazine subscription up to date? Visit ChristianCentury.org to make a donation and subscribe today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.